It is good to be back with you this morning. It's been four weeks since I was here last, and <clears throat> I work as a, I'm the upper school principal at Whitfield Academy in, in Smyrna, and we're down to the last three weeks of the school year, so it feels like the last four weeks have gone by in a blink, but uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 40 this morning, and if I could ask a favor of somebody, I forgot to get myself a cup of water, and I will usually need that, um, so I would greatly appreciate that. Psalm 40, it's printed for you in uh, your bulletin. If you have your scriptures with you, you can turn to it there. Um, before I read, I just want to say that we could, as I go through this psalm, we can divide this psalm into two halves um, at the end of verse 10. Verses 1 to 10, David is looking back on a previous time of trial in his life, a previous pit of destruction that he was in that God brought him out of. So he's looking back in verses 1 to 10, and then in verses 11 to 17, he's looking up to God from another pit of destruction that he has fallen into. So verses 1 to 10, he's looking back, praising God for past deliverance. And verses 11 to 17, he's looking up for present help. Let's hear God's holy word this morning. Psalm 40, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. 
but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Let's pray together. Father God, we have so much reason to praise you. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit that I might be able to say with with David that I have not held back, but I have proclaimed your great salvation in the midst of the congregation. I pray that this would be true for each one of us, that we would hear what you would say to us through your word this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit and that we would proclaim how great you are and how good you have been to us. Father, we we praise you and we seek you and we ask that you speak to us this morning. None of us here need to hear the words of a man. We need to hear the word of God. And so we look to you, O God, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by your circumstances that you found it was hard to breathe? Have you ever been so confused and hurt by something that has happened to you or maybe something that you yourself did that it was disorienting to you and you didn't even know which way was up? You didn't know what to do or where to go or how to handle what was happening. Anybody been there? (laughs) I think if you live life on this earth, you have been in situations like that. Maybe you were betrayed by a close friend or a trusted coworker who you trusted with a secret and they divulged it in a way that was humiliating to you or damaging to you. Or maybe they used it against you. Maybe you've had a child who rebelled in a way that was deeply painful and personal. Maybe maybe it was a diagnosis of cancer or a bankruptcy or a mortgage foreclosure. I remember when our oldest son was born. He's 10 now, but he was born over two months early, which even that right there, you know, it was not a fun time. But we were in the hospital, and um, my wife was given some medication to prevent her from going into a seizure because she had severe preeclampsia. And um, that medication had an effect on Andrew, and they delivered him because he hadn't moved uh, in the womb for more than 48 hours as a result of this medication that my wife had been given. And when we were going into the C-section room and the, the doctor basically told us, we don't know what's going on with your son. We don't know if he has some sort of severe neurological problem that we just haven't detected until this point. We don't know uh, what it's going to be like when he comes out. You know, we were just overwhelmed. This was our first child. We'd never been through this before. It was April. We were thinking he wasn't going to be born until June. And within days, our entire world had been turned upside down, and we were just overwhelmed. 
In Psalm 40, verse 2, David refers to a time when he was in a pit of destruction and in the miry bog. He uses a, a visual image here that is very striking, and it's something that everybody in the ancient world would have been familiar with. He's, he's bringing in a picture from the worst ancient prisons, pretty similar to the one that Joseph was thrown in in Genesis. Not the cistern, but when Potiphar's wife accused him of adultery and then he was put into prison. Prisons in the ancient world, you see, were not like our prisons of today. Prisons in the ancient world were, were frequently literally a hole in the ground. And they were a hole in the ground with a single opening at the top that had a gate over the top of it, and it served as both door and window and ventilation. And that was the only opening. Other than that, it was just a giant pit. And prisoners were literally thrown into the pit, and the gate was shut. There was no light. There was no running water. There were no other ways out. It was a pit of destruction. Because in the ancient world, they didn't believe in sort of gently rehabilitating prisoners through education. They believed in destroying the rebellious spirit and the will of the prisoner. And so the pit of destruction was designed to be both physically and psychologically tortuous. And you're in the pit of destruction, and when it rains, guess what? It fills up with water, and you have nowhere to go. And so the bottom of the pit is the miry bog. It is a muddy, sloppy mess because there's also no bathrooms. So when David says in verse 2, the miry bog, it is a vivid, disgusting image. And it is dark, and it is frightening, and it's hopeless. And he uses that image to drive home what it felt like when he went through the trial that he went through. Yeah, I was trying to think of some modern equivalent to that. What would we go through that would feel anything like that? And I just couldn't get my hands on anything. I thought, you know, the closest experience to that that I've had, physically speaking, may have been the uh, Georgia Department of Driver Services. <laughs> you guys have it bad here. I'll tell you, this is the third state I've been in driving in the last several years, and uh, boy, when I had to go to DDS to get my driver's license, three hours I was in that place, and there was no cell phone reception, and there was no Wi-Fi, all right, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> so what had been happening in David's life that would cause him to refer to it as a pit of destruction and a miry bog? What could he be looking back on and, and be thinking of it in those terms? Well, imagine faithfully serving a king, your king, fighting valiantly for him, risking your life, pursuing the enemy, being pursued by the enemy, serving him, composing and singing songs for him, 
and then have that king just suddenly and irrationally turn on you and attack you violently and then pursue you so that you're living your life always on the run, being hunted down by the king you served faithfully. That would certainly be a pit of destruction. Or imagine living with the guilt of having committed adultery and then conspired to have the man whose wife you had an affair with murdered and then dealing with the consequence of your sin as your newborn son from that adulterous relationship dies and there's nothing you can do to save him. That would be a pit of destruction. So David knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to go through incredibly difficult times. In fact, if we look in 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, we look at David's life, there are probably three pits of destruction that we could point to. Two of them I've already mentioned. The third one, which I think is the one that he's going into in this psalm, was when his son Absalom rebelled against him and overthrew him from the kingdom and drove him out of Jerusalem. And what's interesting about the three, if you think about them, suffering comes into our lives as a result of sin in the world. We suffer because we live in a fallen world. If there was no sin in the world, there would be no suffering in the world, right? We'd be in, literally in paradise. But the worst kinds of suffering, I think, are the ones that are directly the result of sin, either someone else who has sinned against us or our sin. And if you look at these three pits that David had been in in his life, all three of them have a lot of sin mixed in them. The first one, it was the sin of King Saul, who was jealous of David's um, superior military ability and who turned on him in injustice and pursued him to try to kill him. In the second one, it was entirely David's own sin. So in the first one, David was completely innocent. But in the second one, David was completely guilty. He's the one who committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's the one who conspired to have Uriah the Hittite killed. He's the one who tried to cover up his sin. So it was guilt. And the third one, it was a mixture. David was guilty in part. If you don't know, you can read in 2 Samuel 13, the reason why Absalom rebelled against David is because David had ignored a serious sin issue among his children. And so, because he had ignored a serious sin issue among his children, Absalom got fed up with David, basically, and conspired to overthrow him. But then he was being pursued by his son. So it was a mixture of his own sin and the sin of his son. And so that really shows us that David knew all kinds of suffering. Suffering caused by the sin of another, suffering caused by his own sin, and suffering that was a mixture of his own sin and the sin of another. But how did he respond? How did David respond when he was in the pit of destruction? He tells us in verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. Now that's hard to do. Because if you're like me, when your world is upside down and you're not sure which way to go, the one thing that you want to do is to somehow 
grab control of it and make it right. Right? That's what I want to do. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to show that person or put them in their place or get where I need to be. That's not what David did. You remember he had opportunities to kill Saul twice. He could have put an end to the injustice he was suffering, but he did not. He waited patiently for the Lord. Now, when you wait patiently for the Lord, it's not like you do nothing. David wasn't doing nothing when he waited patiently for the Lord. He cried out. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. That means as David was waiting, he was crying to the Lord. He was crying to the Lord. And God saved him. God delivered him from the pit of destruction. God brought him out of the miry bog. And David went on his merry way and said, Thank you, God. I will take it from here. Right? Nope. That's what I've done in my life at times. Thank you, God. Appreciate it. I'll take it from here. But David didn't do that. David responded to God's deliverance by doing two things. And there are two things that should characterize everyone's life who has experienced God's deliverance. He praised God and he proclaimed who God was. He praised God. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in God. He proclaimed, verse 5, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And David's praise and David's proclamation had a result. It bore fruit. It brought people to God because David was able to say, I was being pursued by my enemy. I was helpless and hopeless. I was alone and terrified, and God delivered me. And other people were able to hear that and were able to say, wow, God must really be great if he's able to deliver someone who is completely outnumbered by his enemies. Wow, God must really be good if he cares that much about his children to come to their rescue. And so the greatness of God and the goodness of God are exalted in David's praise and in David's proclamation, and many see and many fear and many put their trust in God. But David doesn't stop there. From praise and proclamation, David goes on to give himself wholeheartedly and unreservedly to God. Verse 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. David says to God, you have given me an open ear. It's a double image that David has, this open ear. On one level, it's simply, open ear means God opened up David's ears so that he could hear the voice of God. When I hear this, I think of the confrontation when Nathan the prophet came to David 
after his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan comes in and he tells him this great story about a guy who has a whole flock of sheep, but he goes and steals his neighbor's one lamb who is precious to him, and he slaughters that lamb and roasts it and eats it instead of taking one of the lambs from his own flock. And David is outraged, and David says, who is this guy? He needs to be dealt with. And Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. Right there, God opened David's ears. Because to that time, David had just been sinning and closing his ears to the voice of God. But God opened his ears. We need God to open our ears if we're going to hear his voice. But there's a second image of an open ear from the ancient world that I think is also in, in mind here. There was a practice when a Hebrew was, was being held in bondage by another Hebrew. It could not be under Mosaic law. It could not be a lifelong slavery. So if one um, Hebrew held another Hebrew as a servant, it had to be for a fixed period of time, kind of like an indentured servitude. And then at the end of that time, that servant was set free. But if that servant loved his master and wanted to continue to serve his master for the rest of his life, there was a ceremony where that servant would go and the master would pierce his ear, usually against the door of the house, and would drive a nail through his ear to mark that servant as belonging to that master for life. And I think that's what David has in mind here. It's not just that God opened his ear so he could hear, but in response to that, David comes to God and says, I'm yours. I love you, and I will serve you, and I will do your will for the rest of my life. Mark me out. I am yours. But again, don't miss, that's not something David did of his own free will because he's such a great guy. It's something God did for him. You have given me an open ear. And so he delights to do God's will because God has put that delight in him. All of this is background to the suffering that David is now facing. If you look at verses 11 to 15, you'll see the current suffering that David is facing. And the reason why I think it is the situation with Absalom fits this best is because David is both overwhelmed by his own sin and he is on the run for those who seek his life. Verse 12, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Here is David as an older man who really is understanding how sinful he is. And he's overwhelmed by it. He sees the neglect of his children. He sees the pride of his heart. He sees the neglect of his army. He sees the corruption that has seeped into him in his palace. And he is overwhelmed by his own sin. But then, 
Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. So David is literally fleeing for his life, and there are those who are seeking his life. There are those who are seeking him out, and he needs deliverance. So I think what's happening is he's running away from Absalom. Notice what David is thinking about. Even in the midst of this present danger, he is thinking about how faithful God has been to him in the past. He is thinking about how good it was to praise God when he delivered him in the past. He is thinking about the people of God and how they benefited from that praise and proclamation. And he is even now looking forward to a time when he will again be able to praise God. And he is still thinking about the people of God. You see, in verse 16, he says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation Say continually, great is the Lord. David's heart, while he's crying out for deliverance, while he is in terror and while he needs God to deliver him, his heart is never far from the people of God and from what they will be able to say about the greatness of God. Well, that's how this psalm reflects David's heart and David's life. But if we look a little further in the story of Scripture, we will find out that this psalm, as much as it arises from David's own life and his own heart and shows us a lot about him as the man after God's own heart, it is even more about Christ. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. One of the things I love about Scripture, one of the things that that just continually confirms to me that this is the Word of God, is the way everything in Scripture is connected and woven together into a beautiful tapestry. And so if you really want to understand how to, how to interpret the Old Testament, the way you do it is by looking at how it is woven into the New Testament and how the New Testament brings it to light for us. It's been said by someone that when it comes to understanding Scripture, we have to see that the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the new is in the old concealed, and the old is by the new revealed. Right? Or another one says, the old is in the new um, enclosed, and the new, the old is by the new disclosed. And so Hebrews 10, we get a very... Um, maybe unexpected and yet beautiful understanding of Psalm 40. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why in the world did they do all those sacrifices in the Old Testament? If you're familiar with pop culture and what's going on in our culture today, there's a lot of like confusion swirling around because... People don't really understand what to do with a lot of the Old Testament law 
It's because they won't let the New Testament interpret it for them. And so there's people who have gone out and tried to live out literally the Old Testament law and, and, and try to keep it and, and see what that's like. And there's also a lot of other people who say a lot of harsh things against Scripture because of some things that are in the Old Testament law. But the Old Testament law is, is designed to point us to Christ, and this is one of those great passages to help us understand that. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order that he might establish the second. And by that will, listen to this, by that will, we have been sacrificed, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author of Hebrews doesn't even mention, this kind of blows my mind when I think about this, the author of Hebrews doesn't even mention that David wrote Psalm 40. You know, sometimes the New Testament will quote Psalms and it'll say, David said, speaking of Christ, it doesn't even say that. It just says, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then it goes back and directly quotes Psalm 40. You know what that means? That means that Psalm 40 are the words of Christ, even though they came out of the life and the pen of David. It was the Holy Spirit that was writing down a thousand years before Jesus was born the experience and the life and the passion of Christ in Psalm 40. It's beautiful. Only God can do that. Only God can have some guy write something down a thousand years before another guy is born that is actually his words, but written a thousand years beforehand. Do you get that? That ought to just really make us say, wow, this has to be God. Because while there's, you know, here's this line, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. How was David able to say that? I mean, yeah, there's some stuff, I guess, in the Mosaic Law about kings and the way that kings should be. But really, who that's really about is Christ. Christ comes into the world and he says, look, God, Father, everything that you've said about me throughout the whole Old Testament, I have now come to do. All of it. Every prophecy, every sacrifice, every promise is all fulfilled in Christ. Someone once said, without Christ, without Christ, the Old Testament is a book of unfulfilled promises 
unanswered questions and unexplained mysteries without Christ. Without Christ, if you end the Bible at the book of Malachi, you have a bunch of prophecies that are never fulfilled. You have a bunch of promises that are never kept. You have a bunch of mysteries that are never explained. You have a bunch of questions that are never answered until Christ comes into the world and he says, it is written of me in the scroll of the book and I have come to do your will. That's profound and it's beautiful and it, it, it unites scripture together in Christ. So now we can go back to Psalm 40 and we can say, how, how is this the words of Jesus? How is this all from Christ and about Christ. And what seems like a pretty profound psalm to have come from David's life becomes something even more deeply profound and beautiful when we realize that it is Christ who is speaking. Because we realize that it is Jesus who is in the pit of destruction, in the miry clay. And we realize that he is there because he entered willingly for us. You see, that's the difference. David, he ended up in the pit of destruction due to somebody else's sin or due to his own sin, but it was never chosen. But Jesus entered into the pit of destruction willingly, in love. Like David, Jesus was betrayed by others. The rulers of Israel who should have recognized him and welcomed him and celebrated him instead plotted in a conspiracy to betray him. Judas, his closest follower, betrayed him. But here's the difference. King Saul's plots against David failed. But the plots of the leaders of Israel succeeded. Absalom's plot against his father failed. Judas's plot against his master succeeded. And here's the last one. David felt the overwhelming weight of what it was to suffer for his own sin. But God was merciful. God withheld the full measure of his wrath. God spared David gave him another son, Solomon, who would sit on the throne, halted the judgment against Jerusalem. Jesus hung on the cross and knew what it was to suffer, not for his own sin, but for your sin and mine. And God the Father did not relent. He did not hold back. He did not spare his own son, but willingly gave him up for us all. And so Psalm 40 shows us that Christ, our great deliverer, first had to be delivered himself 
from the pit of destruction that he entered into for you and for me. In the pit, Jesus trusted in God. On the cross, he cried out in truth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also cried out, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. Jesus, last time I was here four weeks ago, I emphasized how Jesus is the unquestioned, unrivaled king of the world. He's the king of the nations, and he has no peer, and he has no challenger to the throne. But today, God wants us to see that this great and exalted king was the one who stooped to take up his cross for us. And so, if we belong to Christ, this psalm is for us as well. It's for you and for me if we belong to Christ. You see, now we can enter into Psalm 40 and we can look, particularly at the first 10 verses, and we can say, no matter what your life circumstances have been, Verses 1 to 10 of Psalm 40 are true for you if you know Christ. Because in the pit of destruction, God has heard your cry and has delivered you. What greater pit of destruction is there than to have sin against a holy God? to have the justice of God hanging over your head, to have the condemnation of God passed against you, to be guilty before a holy God who is the eternal judge is the greatest pit of destruction that we could ever be in. And we put ourselves in it, and we have no way of getting ourselves out of it. In our sin, we've been thrown in the pit and the gate has been shut and locked and we are without hope except that Christ entered into that pit with us, for us, and took us and brought us out through his death and resurrection. He came in. He put his arms around us and he carried us out of the pit of destruction and he set us upon the rock that is himself and he has put a new song in our hearts, a song of praise to our God for his deliverance for us. And we didn't deserve it and we didn't ask for it. But when we were alone in the dark and the condemnation of our guilt, Christ came and entered our suffering and brought us through to salvation. And so we should respond with praise, with proclamation. We should say, look, I'm a Christian. And that doesn't mean I'm a good person who goes to church. It means I'm a bad person who was going to hell. I'm a Christian, and that doesn't mean that I'm respectable because I put a suit on. It means I'm despicable because I have sinned against a holy God, but God has had mercy on me, and he has delivered me from my sin. And if he can save me, he can save anybody. 
I will praise his name and I will proclaim his gospel and I will reach out to the world with his love that many may see and fear and put their trust in him. That's the response of the heart that has been set free. And that's the confidence that we can have with us as we face lesser pits of destruction. Notice that just because God had rescued David in the past and David had praised him didn't mean that David was immune from getting into another pit. Right? Some people would have us believe, well, if you just, if you just really trust God, then God will keep you out of all those messes. That's not in the Bible. Since 11 of the 12 apostles were unjustly executed for their testimony in Christ. It's not in the Bible that if you trust in God, he's going to keep you out of the pit. But here's what is in the Bible. It's how Psalm 40 ends. And it's how we're going to end this morning. The last verse. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. Our confidence is not that somehow we're going to be strong enough, somehow we're going to be smart enough, somehow we're going to be good enough to stay out of the next pit. Our confidence is that though we are poor and needy, the Lord takes thought for us. That he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8. That's our hope. Our hope is that the Lord takes thought for us. Our hope is that we can cry out to him, you are my help and my deliverer, do not delay, O oh my God. And let me just say this to close. I know I'm running long a little bit. If you don't know that hope, if you can't say from your heart to God, you are my help and my deliverer, O oh my God. If, if that cannot truly be the sincere cry of your heart. Maybe it's something you've heard since you were a small child, but it's never taken root in your own heart. Maybe you think, that's not for me, it's for other people. If you can't say that from your heart, then you have to realize that you are in the biggest pit of destruction of them all, and that you need the most profound deliverance of all. When we walked into that operating room 10 years ago, God met us in a very profound way. Literally, before I walked into the operating room, I was trembling, I was sweating, I was in a panic. And when I walked through the door of the operating room, the Spirit of God so powerfully met us that my wife and I sat there and had a worship time. 
God brought to mind Scripture. God brought songs. God brought His very presence. And then our son was delivered and we heard him cry, this little tiny preemie cry, and it was the most beautiful sound in the world. But that moment of peace was only made possible because earlier in my life, God had rescued me from the pit of my own sin and had placed me on the rock of Christ and had put a new song in my mouth of salvation from condemnation, of deliverance to an eternal hope. So if you don't know Christ, cry out to Him, even as we close with our closing song, cry out to Him from your heart, and He will hear you, and He will deliver you. He gave His Son for you. He loves you. He is never far from the cry of the brokenhearted. And if you know him, but you're in a pit, look to him. Trust in him. For though you are poor and needy, the Lord takes thought for you. And that's our hope. Let's close in prayer together.